Hello. Hello, John. Hey there, Dan Benjamin. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm just looking uh, looking at some Japanese fishing floats. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the old fishing floats. They're a popular decorative element here in the Northwest. And uh, someone sent me a couple the other day, and I've never actually owned one of my own. Okay. And um, it's one of those things that uh, they're decorative elements here uh, to such an extent throughout my whole life that it never occurred to me to to have them myself because they they seemed kitschy but the more i learn about them the more i think they're kind of groovy mm-hmm. so hard to know where, where where do you fall when something that once was kitschy starts to seem groovy does that mean that <laughs> you have become susceptible to kitsch or that you oh, know fresh. enough now to not to to redefine kitsch Right. It's tough, tough for me because I think all, all of those things are true. It's all true. Yeah. 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 It's like if you were living in Texas, for instance, uh-huh. and, um, and, uh, you suddenly started to feel like a garden cutout of, a of a man in a cowboy hat and uh-huh. a woman in a, um, in a bonnet. Uh, oh, oh, a woman in a bonnet who's bending over in the garden and you can see her frilly underpants, something uh-huh. like that. Okay. Um, that, that was like a gar, a, a Texas style garden gnome. Oh, that right. you suddenly realized that those have like a long history and they're wonderful. I'm not saying that a Japanese fishing float is the equivalent of a two dimensional cutout of a farm woman with her underwear showing. So I'm, I'm looking saying. at this Japanese fishing float and this when I look this up, it looks like it's a ball that's sort of been wrapped in braided yarn or string or something, maybe thin rope, 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 rope hand, hand done rope. Yeah. And I mean, they, they look, I'm seeing pictures of them hanging from things. It looks very pretty, but what are these like, are they, I'm obviously decorative, but are they, do they commemorate something? Is there a reason that, Oh no. See in the, in ye olden times, mm-hmm. Um, what the, uh, what ye ancient fishermen did mm-hmm. was they would, they would actually hand blow, uh, a glass ball. They would, you know, they would seal it. It didn't have an opening. And so there was air inside. Yeah. And then they would wrap it in a net of, uh, like a little braided sort of, uh, bag. Uh-huh. And then they would attach those to their fishing nets. And that was how their, that was how they kept their fishing nets up before there were, um, other, before they were obviously plastic buoys or whatever, but also in favor of using, I don't know what other fishermen used to keep their nets buoyant. Maybe they didn't fish that way. Maybe huh. they threw their nets in and then pulled them up instead of trying to keep them buoyant. But right. And, uh, and so of course this was a somewhat fragile system and these, these glass balls would get loose and, mm-hmm. And they would float across the ocean and you could find them on Pacific Northwest beaches. It was like a beachcomber thing. Ah. Uh, they haven't been used in decades. Yeah. Uh, like practically. Right. But they've been, um, I mean, so they've what- been floating across the ocean, you know, as soon as they, as soon as one of those nets degrades or, or breaks right. or whatever, 
they're just out there. They're floating in the Pacific right now in the Pacific ocean. They're all of these 50, 60 year old, 70 year old glass fishing floats, just bobbing along, waiting <laughs> to show up on some Oregon beach and right. get beach combed and then sold to you for $5 at a, at a roadside trinket stand. At least that's what it was or mm-hmm. it used to be. And mm-hmm. then you, t- you bring them home and put them in your garden or on a shelf and say, oh yeah, it's my little, you know, I mean, they're beautiful because they're these hand blown little objets and they're, and they're hand blown glass that has a practical application. So they're not, they're not made intentionally to be beautiful. They have that accidental beauty. Right. Which is so appealing to those of us who decorate in the Japanese style. Yeah. Yes. Is that a theme for you? Is that something that you've been doing a lot in, you know, in your, in your, in the homestead or you're not in the new house yet. Are you? No, no, I'm not. And, um, like Japanese decorative arts, have always been a part of the Pacific Northwest style of architecture and design. Okay. Like the, this, the, what we, what we call the Pacific rim, which is that whole from here all the way up around through Alaska to out the Aleutians and down into the Asian seafaring cultures. Yeah. There's a sense of, Within the global community, there's a sense of common and shared cause throughout that, uh, that whole Pacific rim that kind of, I think that consciousness is, or that awareness is, uh, both ancient and also fairly recent modern. Um, when I was a kid, a lot of people sort of decorated their homes in Pacific Northwest Native American art forms. Okay. And the oldest versions of those were, um, you know, were like authentic native stuff that like the original settlers just kind of took it, like (laughs) rolled up on a village and were like, that's a cool totem pole and just took it. Took it. Not, not realizing its significance. But I think that, uh, you know, the, the nations of, um, the Tlingit and the Haida and the Nootka and the Snohomish and I mean, all the, the local tribes, they figured out pretty early that they could make stuff to trade, make, you know, local, make traditional and traditionally decorated items and sell them to Europeans. Right. So when I was young, every kind of well-decorated house had like a, some sort of clinket art, a little bit of like a, you know, a carved box or a little totem. Right. Um, and then the, there were textile arts too. And of course my, the, the Cowichan sweaters that I wear are all, uh, a native handicraft from Vancouver Island. So it was just sort of part of the way that. Pacific Northwest, which was, which was far away from the rest of the United States and kind of excluded from the United States until after the world's fair, it's just sort of a regional culture. And then we had a a lot of Japanese and Chinese immigrants here dating back to the 19th century. And so 
when so the northwest bungalow style often has real asian a- aspects to it little kind of details little turnups there are a lot of people decorating their homes with the japanese garden style um it's just been a it's just been a cross pollination for a long time and i always admired it because it was it was how sophisticated people decorated like my aunt <laughs> when they got money uh-huh you know they went to asia and and bought some 200 year old gilt room screens and you know their house was decorate had a kimono on the wall that was some 300 year old kimono it was a it was a thing that made you recognize that these were sophisticated people right and here in seattle um there's an asian there's what's called the asian art museum which is you know has like an incredible collection of jades and textile arts so i admired it but i also felt like one of the one of the formative moments for me as a collector decorator i was working in washington dc as a as a like a door to door canvasser for first the public interest research group and then the national environmental law center and it was the it was just the the worst kind of basic activist work where you go in a neighborhood with your clipboard and you ring doorbells and you say, hi, do you have a minute to talk about the clean air act? (laughs) And most people go, no, I don't. But you know, every fifth person is like, yeah, okay, what? And you're like, well, we're working to pass the clean air act and here's what it would mean. And here's how your support would help. And, and I, I was, I was very committed to it for a while and, and enjoyed, enjoyed the work. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't, I I don't have that kind of personality really, but once I got once I got into it, it was like all right. I mean, every time I walked up to the, a new doorbell, I I shuddered. But once I got talking to people, I loved talking about the Clean Air Act, and it was only later that I started to feel like I started to ask like, oh, you, we're 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 getting these donations from people, you know, we're asking them for thirty five dollars as sort of the basic. Um, donation, $15, you know, if you want to, if you want to shortchange us and $50, if you really want to go for it. But I was like, where is all this money going and what is it doing? And I realized after a while that, that, that the money was going to lobby Congress. And the more that I looked into that and the, you know, I was, I was getting promoted within that organization and was you know, and became like a, a, a team leader and then a, then a group manager. And they were like, do you want to, you know, do you want to end up like working here in Washington with us? And mm-hmm. I did, but the more time I spent with the, the next tier up, the more I realized, oh, it's a lobbying, we're lobbying and lobbying means like spending a lot of time on wash uh, on, on Capitol Hill. Like, I don't know what buying people dinners. Like it started to feel <laughs> sketchy and not transparent, I guess was the problem. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooke Linen. You know, you've probably heard us talk about Brooke Linen before. They're the home of the internet's favorite sheets, but their towels, they're also 
amazing. I just got an order of a couple of the towels and they're really great. They're as good as the sheets. You know, the thing is, there's different parts of your daily routine. You know, you sleep on the Brooklyn and sheets and you take a shower. Now they've got towels. I mean, it, and that's the thing. They have varying levels of plushness. So the towel that you really want, it, it's not going to be the same as a towel that I want, for example. And so I like the, the least plush towels of all, and they go way more plush than the ones that, that I got. But these are perfect. I don't like it when you get a towel and like it doesn't dry right. They don't have that problem. These right after, I, you know, you throw them in the washer and you get them, of course, not an animal. And then they just work. They're great. Everything about them is great. And this is the thing. People these days, you're home so much, right? You're kind of looking for ways to like improve your environment because your house is not just like, your house anymore. It's your office. It's the daycare. It's the restaurant. It's like everything that you're doing. And I've kind of been thinking maybe we can make the bathroom a little bit better. Well, why not make it like a little miniature spa? Use the Brooklyn and towels in there, you know, and like you're trying to get a routine back, you know? So like you get the, do you take a shower and you look forward to it? I know it sounds weird. Like you look forward to using a towel. I look forward to the sheets on the bed. Like I'm, maybe I'm just weird, but that's how I feel about it. Anyway, you can have this kind of experience too at Brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, brooklinen.com. The promo code you're going to use is roadwork, one word, and you will save 10% off your first order. So one more time, brooklinen.com. Promo code to save 10% off your first order is roadwork. It's the perfect place to find all the comforts of home, including ultra soft towels. And everything comes with a lifetime warranty. It's everything you need to live your most comfortable life. Thanks very much to Brooklyn and for making this show possible. Where did, so this money goes to where? Well, it goes to, you know, lobby. Well, what does that mean? Where does it go exactly? Like where does, I just spent three months like getting $35 at a time. Um, tens of thousands of dollars and like, do you blow it all on a weekend in Vegas? Like, I'm, but so I got a little disillusioned, but when yeah. I was really, when I was really into it, what I loved about Washington DC was you'd ring the doorbell in some of these neighborhoods and be invited into incredible universes of people who had lived their lives in government. Mm -hmm. And often like state department people who had been stationed overseas in embassies and who had traveled the world on behalf of the U S government. And they were, they were that kind of class of, of intellectual sub diplomat. They knew a lot about the world. They knew a lot about the places they'd been. Um, but they, but there was a humility to them. They were, they had, they were doing this in service of the United States. It wasn't, they weren't doing it to get rich. They weren't trying to parlay their knowledge into anything else. It was just to have a, to have a life in the state department and to retire from it and live humbly in Chevy Chase, Maryland was its own reward. There didn't need to be more, you know? <clears throat> and so I'd get invited into these homes and, and you would see, you would see what, what it looked like to have lived an eclectic and international life because, and I'm somebody that 
you know, if you invite me into your entryway and I see something hanging on the wall, I'm going to say, wow, tell me about that. What is that? And, and what is that? And every once in a while I'd get a, I'd get a live one. Somebody, you know, some old lady who, I mean, old lady, she was probably 65 who was like, oh, well, you know, that's a, a mask from the, the, this tribe. And I was stationed there back in the sixties and I worked, you know, alongside USAID and, um, and that was given to me by the, this, that, and the other. And, you know, the, the stories that, that they had about the things they brought back and the, the way that their places, their homes were decorated in a kind of very jumbled, eclectic style. Yeah. Um, but they weren't people that had, you know, that had a water buffalo head mounted over their fireplace <laughs> and, and 50 gazelles. They were people that had all this, you know, all these little statues and masks and tapestries and things that had, you know, that they'd found not just in a trinket shop, but they'd, they'd been given these things by the local people for working with them. And it just, it conjured in my imagination at the time, like all these potential lives to lead. Uh, I was in, I was what, 20 and, and at the time felt really stymied. I didn't know what I was going to do in life. I didn't have any real feeling of confidence that I, that I could ascend to the level of someone that did something interesting. Mm -hmm. I remember going to college campuses during that period and I wasn't in college and didn't feel like I was, I didn't feel like I was at that level in a way, you know, I always knew I was smart and capable, but I would go walk around university of Colorado or the university of, of, uh, Maryland or Rutgers or something walk around and all the students would be there doing student stuff and they'd all be my age. But I had this huge lack of confidence such that I would look at these other kids and just feel like I wasn't, um, I wasn't invited here. You know, I, I couldn't, and it, and a lot of it had to do with like all that strange energy around college admissions when you're a junior yeah. in high school. Yeah. And the, the fact that during that period, it really, I really took it personally, the idea that there were colleges I could get into and there were a lot of colleges I couldn't. And because my grades were the worst, the number of colleges I could get into was small relative to the number of colleges. And so the University of Colorado was, it would have been impossible for me to get into. And even though the University of Colorado is a big state school that's full of all kinds of ding-dongs, just the idea that I couldn't get in there made me feel like everybody that could occupied a station um, that, I, that was like outside of my grasp. And, and during that period, I didn't know how I could, what I could do to one day get into the university of Colorado. You know, I didn't know, I couldn't imagine the process of like 
going to a community college and and building up credits such you know like getting my math requirements and then applying and getting rejected and trying again you know like none of that none of that felt doable i don't even know if i had thought of it and that's eventually what i did to get into the university of washington mm-hmm. and you know and exercise my family connections and all the things that you do to get into college. If you're a loser who is also like a, a scion. Right. But I remember this summer in DC where it didn't happen every day, but, but fairly frequently I'd get invited into a home and I would strike up a conversation And when I should have just been collecting their money and headed back out to go to the next house, I would stay, you know, and they would, they would give me a, a cup of tea or whatever. And I would sit and ask them questions about their lives and careers. And they were happy to, a lot of them were still, uh, still worked in government. They weren't retired. They were just this, this was them in midlife. Mm Mm-hmm. So when, when I, when I think about decorating my own home in a particular style, rather than decorating it with just the things that I have touched in my life and brought home, Mm -hmm. it's, it feels much more foreign to me to say, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to do this in, you know, I'm going to decorate with some Japanese elements because I've never been to Japan. I've never gone there and brought anything back. And so it all just, um, so I wouldn't be able, I I wouldn't feel like my honest home, but I've been, but I've clearly, because I talk about it all the time, been thinking a lot about how does one express an aesthetic without it reading largely as clutter, just, just clutter to most people Right. to come into, if you came into my old house, it all, it all was part and parcel, Mm -hmm. but you would have to spend weeks walking around and looking at the face of every little statue in that house to, and then ask me questions about it to fully understand why everything was there. Why is this here? Oh, well, that's part of this that, you know, all happened a long time ago and what, whatever. But you're right. I don't live in my current house yet. And so Mm. all of this is potential energy. It's all nascent. These questions are, I don't have a place to answer them in operation. I only have a place to answer them. I don't have answers. I just have a place to I just have imaginary walls. And why is it, I mean, why is it taking so long for you to get back into or to get into the house? I feel like I asked you this like a month ago or two and it was construction was holding things up at the time. Well, it is construction. <clears throat> Has it just stopped the, or? The, the problem has been 
when I when I was searching for houses, I got a picture in mind of of you know of a, of the system of a house and its and its place. And I looked at dozens and dozens of homes. I searched for houses for over a year. And I would walk into houses and say, I would look at them online and say, no, I, I could look at it and say, no, I would walk into a place, walk around and go, no, mm-hmm. because Although to my real estate agents and to the people in my family who were joining me on this great adventure, all these places seemed to meet most of my criteria. To me, it was clear that they were, um, they couldn't be more wrong. And, and, and right. a lot of, yeah, uh, in a lot of those cases that it, they had been inartfully modded, um, the character was drained out of them along the way in ways that it would have been impossible to inject it back in. Right. But a lot of them were just, they were homes that were too modest to begin with in the sense, not modesty in the sense of scale or, mm-hmm. or ritziness, but right. modest in the sense of, of not having ambition. Um, that the house and it's, it didn't, you know, the it did not it aspire born. the creator of the house didn't aspire high enough. Yeah. It wasn't trying to be more than a home. You know, it wasn't the house itself. Wasn't trying to be anything other than like an enclosure and a comfortable one, you know, a cozy one in some cases, uh, a cute one or, um, but, and sometimes a striking one, but never one. I never found one that um, that was, I, and I, the thing is, I did find some that were that were really inspired. Yeah, but they'd often been they'd often been carelessly treated, or they were inspired in a way that I didn't that that didn't sit with me. Okay. And about a year ago, <clears throat> I found a house that was sort of not what I was, not what I was looking for. Okay. Um, it was, a it was a more modern house and, but you know, modern like 1990s. Um, but it had all these, it was extremely dramatic, um, and hadn't been cared for, but it was, um, it showed all this possibility, uh, that, you know, that maybe I could, I could make it into a place that, uh, I don't know that, that, that had, uh, that had aspirations that were bigger than initially intended, or maybe, maybe though, maybe it was intended and then they didn't have the money to finish it off or they didn't have the vision to finish it off. Yeah. And I actually made an offer and the offer was accepted and I was going to move in. And then at the last minute, I realized that this house was all aspiration and no, there was nothing practical about it. It was not a home. 
It was not a cozy home. It was all Strumendrang. And when I, when I pictured myself in it, I realized that I also need a home. You know, I also need privacy and uh, special places, you know, places to hide. And not, you <laughs> wait, know, wait, hide yourself? Yeah. Or your stuff? No, no, no. Myself. I mean, your house is a place, at least for me, where I, I, I saw so many houses where the house had been designed to entertain. Like the private spaces were, um, were second thoughts that what, what the, the energy in the home was, and then I'm talking about in the architecture was all focused on inviting people in and, and wowing them with your public space. And there were a couple of houses that I just loved because you could stand there and just picture the cocktail parties that had happened there in the oh, 1960s. Yeah. Right. Where everybody from the board came to the Christmas party and everyone from the junior league had come for Easter and you, you know, you could just see people standing in all the different little conversation nooks and spilling their drinks and laughing and redolent of hairspray and cigarettes. But I realized in looking at those houses, that's not how I live. The number of times when I, that I'm going to have 80 people in my house, you know, m maybe once in my life, will I ever have, will I ever volunteer my house as the place to have, the big party. It's not how I use my space. You know, how I use my space is that I go hide over here and then I move over and hide over here. Like my, my house is my house, um, is a place with six to 10 different little places for me to go and I, I hide. It's the only word I can think of to describe it. And, um, and although I can picture myself in these glamorous places, I can't, I, I would be, I would be like one of those lonely Gatsby's mm. kind of, you know, like bumping around in a space too big, uh, that was, you know, that, that was there to express an ambition that, that wasn't human scale. But I, but I needed a house to have some drama. I could, I don't want to just live in a warren of, of square rooms where, I mean, I, I don't just want to hide in a, in a cardboard box with a window cut out of it. Right. Like I want to be inspired. So eventually I found the house that I, that I bought. And I think to most people who'd been working with me for a year looking for this house, the house didn't make any sense. I mean, at one level it did that it was untouched. No one had ever restored it or really even put a dollar into it. Not only was it untouched, it was, you know, it was 
a, a decade had gone by since it was last maintained. Right, right. But the house was was maybe more humble than than the people working with me had come to believe I was uh, I wanted. Right, I'd I'd put such a um, I put such I had privileged certain design elements so much that this house, although it had many of them, they were just on a humble scale. They did this house was not a uh, a place that you would hang great art. If you put a kimono on the wall of this house, it would just, it would just clang. Um, but the scale of the house was, was right for me. And what I didn't understand when I moved, when I, when I, when I chose this house, I didn't understand a lot of things. And one of the things I didn't understand was there, there are, Questions of scale that are often resolved in a matter of one or two feet. Like if this room was one foot wider, it would be more practical. If this room was one foot shallower, it would be more livable, you know, and you have to trust if you're somebody like me, a lay person, you have to trust that an architect or a builder is going to be conscious of those things and say like, Right. You don't want a room that's nine foot wide by 15 feet long. It's just not a, it's not a usable space. You can have a room with the same square footage, but, but designed in a way that's, you know, where's the door? Where's the closet? Like these things really matter. And there were some, there were some things about this house that I bought that it was, it was designed by an architect at the beginning of his career. And he went on to, you know, design a pavilion at the Seattle center. But in his, you know, when he was young, this was like a house that he was trying stuff out or it was, you know, he was, was getting his bones. But the, the other thing that I just should have known, I've restored a couple of houses. One major, my mom's house was a major redo. Mm. And, and when we went into my mom's house, it had been gutted and awfully redone. And we took all of this stuff out and restored it to what we thought it would have looked like in 1904 and spent a lot of money doing it. And it was a lot of work. And my mom and I, you know, just day in and day out over there with our overalls on and our scrapers and our, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just like really may and and on an hourly basis making decisions about like what do we do with this little alcove how does the what would the trim do here to make it around this seven-sided corner but my house was intact it's just that it hadn't been maintained and right. so there was dry rot in the walls there was the electrical stuff all needed to be upgraded and i felt like this is doable by me i i know how to do some of this work and I know how to contract this work. I know how to make this, do this work fast and easy. Most of the house is intact and I'll just keep it that way. 
And so in buying it, and because the work needed to happen, you know, the house was priced accordingly. It was it was much cheaper than anything else I've been looking at, much cheaper than any of the houses around it. And I felt like it kind of, it's a no brainer. All I, instead of buying a house that costs this much money, I buy a house that costs, costs way less. And then I take that extra money. I use it to fix up the house. And then for the same amount of money I was prepared to pay, I would have a house that I restored to my own specifications. But as we started to work on the house, you know, there was a little bit of mission creep. I was like, I want this, I want that. And pretty soon it was a bigger project than. Yeah. Well, not uh, always. I mean, you, that, that happens. Sure. And, and one of them was a question of like, this room is nine foot by 15 feet. And what it really wants to be is, you know, like 12 by 12. And so how hard is it to just move this wall over here? Well, it's not that hard. All right, well, why don't we move this wall and we'll restore some balance, some feng shui to this space. So there was mission creep. But very quickly, I entered into a, a world where I had in mind what some of the basic elements were going to be, what the tile looked like, what the bathroom fixtures looked like. And I couldn't find them on the market. I went to the tile stores. They didn't have it. What they had was a 10,000 stupid looking tiles. <laughs> and what I thought was very clearly the most beautiful and, and also, you know, not, not crazy. I'm not trying to get tiles that, that were, uh, under the Aegean sea for 2000 years. I just want the tiles that I want the selection of tiles that would have been available to the original builder of this house in 1953. I just want to go to a plumbing supply store and a tile warehouse in 1953 and pick just basic items from their stock selection. But those things are gone. And what seemed to me to be an easy, uh, I don't understand the world because I'm at a tile store and there are 20,000 options <laughs> that to my eye all look exactly the same. Like, okay, it looks like a, it looks like a floor from an Italian palazzo with diamonds, with, with black diamond <laughs> elements. Oh, here's a floor from an Italian palazzo with square, black square elements. Here's an, a floor from an Italian palazzo with marble square elements. And they, none of them look, I mean, they, what they are is they're, they're fake Italian palazzo floors that people are putting in their McMansions or frankly taking houses like mine and restoring them, restoring them and putting in floors from a fake Italian palazzo, which is what I can't, you can hear it in my voice. It offends me to, to such a degree, um, that I would, I would walk out of these places and just spit on the ground. 
and there are a lot of like very very easy like standard fixes people that have style in america today and as i say this i don't want to offend any of our listeners but people who have style have decided in the last 10 or 15 years that white subway tile, which is to say rectangular, right. white, shiny tile. Everyone loves that in their kitchens as a backsplash. And in their bathrooms. Yeah. That became the byword, the, the, the default style. If you had a classic sensibility and you wanted to redo your bathroom or kitchen in a simple way, that, that read to you like this is vintage, this is cool, this is, you know, this is what would have been. And so everywhere you go, you can find white subway tile, and that's what it's called because it looks like the tile they used in the subways. But I don't want white subway tile. These bathrooms would not have had white subway tile. They wouldn't have had subway tile at all. Subway tile wasn't a thing that they used in 1953. (laughs) They would be four-inch square People in 1953 uh, would have would have looked at subway tiles and said, "That's something from a subway. What do I want that in my house for?" Yeah, they would have said, "Oh, that's the tile that they use in 1920s bungalows." Right. You right. Know? And we're living in a world now that is that all style now is pastiche because you remember when we were kids, and even before or in the 10 or 20 years before we were kids style was a thing that went seasonally and changed utterly the spring styles and the fall styles were totally different and and like genius artists were working all year long to decide that between spring and summer, the length of the sleeves of dresses went down an inch and a half. And that was rocking people's worlds. Mm -hmm. Like, whoa, have you seen the latest? Like the hemlines. I can't believe the hemlines, you know, and the difference between a 65 Mustang and a 67 Mustang, like it's, it's a radical difference. Compared to the difference between a 99 Ford Taurus and a 97 Ford Taurus, I challenge you, you know, like we're just, we live in a world now where style doesn't, all style exists simultaneously. So you, you bump into a stylish person and it's like, oh, well, they're wearing a skirt from, I mean, if you had the ability to decode, to completely decode, you you'd be able to look at them and say that hemline was originally introduced in 1960 as part of this collection. And that hemline didn't exist before that moment. And it was out of fashion within a year and a half. But at that time, that was the hemline and whoever it is at old Navy or banana Republic who is charged with designing clothes found an example of it in an archive or just invented it off of the top of their head Mm -hmm. or whatever and, and designed a thing that looked to them to be classic and cool. I mean, I know Ralph Lauren has warehouses full of vintage clothes that he 
has always used as inspiration for new designs. And, you know, those big mass production fashion houses, they go out, I mean, they used to go out to thrift stores, travel around the world, finding old shit and buying it and bringing it home. And that's why you buy those clothes and they all look so classic because they're just, they're, they're ginned up versions of old stuff. But if you look at somebody very fashionable now, you never look at them and say, whoa, that is so spring 2020. <laughs> right, right. You look at them and you go, oh, those are work boots that from Red Wing that were originally designed in 1930. And that's a cut of jeans that dates back to 1885, except it's been modified to look like a pair of old jeans that were modified by cool kids in 1970. And the shirt and the hat and the everything. And so you can choose from this palette of everything. And so there isn't any, there's not any look anymore. There's not a, there's not a now anymore. There's just a, an everything except for in things like bathroom design, where there still are these cadres of taste makers and gatekeepers who are determining like this is, these are the cool bathroom fixtures for 2020. And these are, you know, these are the, this is the tile that we use. And, and I think a lot of it is driven by like whoever the buyers are at Lowe's, whatever the contractors feel like is the, um, most cost effective way to do it. But if you, if you, if you went into all the condos in Austin that were built between 95 and 2015 mm-hmm. over, you know, 20 years, you would find that there was a kind of, there was a timeline of available materials that the question is initially these available materials were the, were the product of some, some first design, some style, some person put in a kitchen that had marble countertops, cherry wood cabinets, stainless steel appliances, subway tile, et cetera travertine floors or not travertine, but like mock Italian floors. Mm -hmm. Someone did that once and it probably appeared in architectural digest. And then someone else was like, that's incredible. I want that. And pretty soon it became what all the high end places had. And then pretty soon it was people realized that they could replicate that look by just buying slightly cheaper marble, you know, marble looks like marble to most people. And Mm -hmm. so then it's like, well, I got marble countertops too. It's like, well, that marble was from Lake Como and it cost $10,000 a sheet. And your marble is from Romania and it costs $50 a sheet, but it does kind of look the same, frankly. And then all of a sudden all appliances were stainless steel and all floors were mock travertine and all tile was, was this, 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 and this. And apparently no one on the consumer side cared or 
I'm wrong. And it is truly beautiful. <laughs> it is, it's like, like maybe I don't get it. And we have reached the pinnacle of what a kitchen and a bathroom should look like. Like we're there. They should, you know, they should look like you took a meat grinder and you put in some faux Mediterranean elements and some faux, uh, like Manhattan tenement elements and some, you know, and some like the bathroom in a bank, and, you know, and <laughs> too, you too many different up. things from too many different places is what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Oh, and then, and then some lab equipment, you know, and, and you just ho you just hose it out. Cause it all, that's, well, that's what everything looks like. Anyway, you, you hear the frustration in my voice because what happened to me was I became paralyzed. Mm. Paralyzed, not just because I thought everything looked terrible, not just because I couldn't find even the simple, what seemed to me to be the simplest thing uh, that was close to what I wanted. The tiles that we saw in every grandmother's bathroom throughout the 1970s that at the time were all, we, we thought was corny. But, but the paralyzation was that I couldn't, knowing both of those things, knowing the truth, mm -hmm. I could not act. I could not do what, what a, a capable person would do in that situation, which is to say, all right, well, this is the state of affairs. And so what do I need to do? What can I choose? that is the least offensive to me that I can get this done. I was not able to do that. And what I learned over the months was that I don't have a certain kind of decisiveness in a, in a crunch situation. If, if, if we're standing on the side of a riverbank and the flood is coming and the riverbank is caving in <laughs> right. and there's a fire at our backs. I'm a, I'm very decisive. You know, I'm not somebody that's going to stand there and go, I don't know what to do until, until the fire takes us. Right. Like I can choose a course in, in an instant in so many situations, but in this situation, I could not settle for shitty looking tile. I could not find good tile. And so a part of me died. <laughs> and I like I slumped over and refused to choose. We would like to say thanks to Squarespace, of course. Squarespace, who else? Longest, what probably the longest sponsor supporting us that we've ever had. You can do so much with Squarespace. Take your idea, whatever it is, turn it into a website. So you got some work you want to showcase? Yeah, make that a website. Blog, publish content, sell products, sell your services, promote your physical business, your online business. Announce an event. People still have events. They're all virtual, but why not? Announce it with Squarespace. It does everything. Built-in 
super powerful e-commerce. You can customize the look, the feel, the settings, the products with just a few clicks. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box because it has to be. And they even have a new way to buy domains. They have over 200 extensions, plus analytics that help you grow in real time, built-in search engine optimization. It's all there. Anything and everything that you've ever wanted to do on the web, on the internet. They're there and they're encouraging us, people like us, to make it ourselves. You know, we can do this by ourselves. We don't need to hire a firm. We don't need to hire some company. We don't have to deal with a a freelance college kid. No, no. If you think it, you can dream it. You can make it with Squarespace, right? So go over to squarespace.com. You're going to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. If you go to it's squarespace.com slash roadwork, one word, of course, it's always one word, roadwork. And if you use that promo code roadwork, you are going to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That's where I register my domains now, so you should too, but get a website. That's what it's all about. Thanks very much to Squarespace for making this show possible. And my contractor is just some guy. He's just some dope who's just trying to make places. And Every morning he wakes up and goes and talks to a client and they say, I want cherry wood cabinets and, and granite countertops and Italianate floors. And so when he meets with a client, he opens a little book that he's prepared and he's like, here are the subway tiles. Here are the granite countertops. Pick one. And he never has a problem <clears throat> with a client because that's what they all do. No one ever has a problem with people, you know? All these houses that have been inartfully restored, like they all sell within an hour of going on the market. People look at it and they love it. They're like, oh, wow, it's craftsmen. It's like, it's not fucking craftsmen. Are you kidding me? This, there's, there's no way a craftsman thing belongs in here. It, it, to me, it's like someone is standing in my face with an air horn. But people are like, it's great. It's amazing. And I, and I know they are because I watch these houses sell. I watch these, these elements fly off the shelves. They have to be because when I ask for what I'm looking for, Mm -hmm. the people in the stores just look at me like, well, they've never heard of it. Right. I'm like, this was in every home (laughs) 50 years ago. Not just every of a certain kind of home. It was in every home. This was all that was available (laughs) then. And now you're saying that doesn't exist. So I, I became paralyzed and depressed and, and basically refusing to act. The contractor would say, well, we need to pick a thing to finish this bathroom. And I would say, I'm working on it. And then I would go spend hours online and not find what I was looking for and close my computer and lay back on the bed and fall into a deep depression or a funk, not a depression, a funk. And then three days later, the contractor would say, Hey, I'm still waiting on the, your decision about that. And I would say, yep, I'm going to get that to you bright and early tomorrow. And I would spend up, I'd sit up all night looking online, trying to find anything that didn't make me want to barf and I would not find anything and I would close the computer and I would fall into a deep funk and I would come downstairs and I would do my podcasts and I would go for walks and I would work in the garden, but I would not choose 
I mean, were you thinking about it? Were you struggling with the choice or was it just sort of put out of your mind? Oh, it was not out of my mind. No, you were. So it you was were all just I thought pro- about. Yeah. For 12 hours a day saying, yeah. could, let's say that someone came and said, you have to have white subway tile. Mm-hmm. Could you survive? I mean, you could have, you, you knew about ripping it out, but you're just saying you just didn't want to do that. You just wanted it to be like it was originally. No, I wanted to rebuild it as though it had never been destroyed. Right. I wanted to, I had to take it apart in order to fix the dry rot, in order to change the electricity and the plumbing. Uh, and because it wasn't salvageable. Mm-hmm. But when I did that, I believed that I could just waltz down to the store and buy the materials I needed to put it back together. And it turned out I couldn't. And I couldn't move. And the fact that I couldn't decide, and rather the fact that I didn't decide, became its own albatross. So that I spent six hours a day searching for material that I couldn't find. I spent six hours a day like in desperate um, borderline panic over the fact that I'd owned this house already for six months and hadn't been able to finish it and I was never going to finish it. Yeah. And not even being able to see like how I could finish it. And then six hours a day really um, rebuking myself for being this um, it's not just the rebuking myself for being fussy, but rebuking myself for what I've always felt was um, like this kind of indecisiveness. It feels um, like a character flaw. It feels unmasculine. It feels, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> A thing that that you look that I would look at and say, um, you know, it's like uh, like George Patton is going to walk up and slap me with a leather glove and say, "Put it together, man!" Right. And so that voice in my head that's always looking for a reason to rebuke myself and hold myself in contempt has has all this fuel because all I have to do is let my mind wander for a second to Mm -hmm. think about this bathroom that is just sitting there unfinished because I wasn't able to choose a faucet (laughs) because the faucets (laughs) were too ugly. Yeah. Like that, that chain of, of, um, like chain of possession of the, of the authority. I wasn't able to, I wasn't able to break it and, and yet I cannot accept it. And it's been a, it's been a spiral to a place of like total desperation where although I have appeared to be just fine, and talking on the shows about all the things that are going on in my life and and having, having conversations and going out and doing stuff, posting on Instagram. Mm -hmm. 
what's been building in my heart is that, you know, that perfect three, you know, the, 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 the perfect right triangle of panic and like self-recrimination and inability to move forward. Mm -hmm. And what I, and I, it's very hard for me to ask for help. And I did ask for help several times along the way. My friend Ben King in Portland, who's an architect, did a lot of work for me. Yeah. Trying to get me into this house, trying to help me fix it up. Um, but Ben King is his own man who has I mean, a you, family do, and do, a job. Are you saying you need people to help with the decision-making part or the product picking part or like physically hands-on in the house doing stuff? <sighs> or all of it? So if I say I need help picking this tile and, uh, and a well-meaning friend comes and says, well, I found this great subway tile and I go, no, I, I know that subway tile exists. Believe me, I've looked already at a thousand subway tiles. It's not what I want. I, and here's what I want. It's, this is it, you know? This is a description of what I want. And the friend goes, oh, okay. And they go look. And they come back with a thing that, yes, I considered that, um, but that's wrong for a, a hundred reasons. Right. At that point, the helpful friend starts to feel like uh, this isn't worth it for them. You know, they are trying to help. They've brought a couple of things to show me and I have heaved a great sigh <laughs> and said, I can tell you the part number of that thing <laughs> at Lowe's oh, that God. you're showing me because I've looked at it 50 times. Right. Um, what I need is not this. I do not need you to show me things that you found at Lowe's. What I need is for you to either have magic powers mm -hmm. to find a thing that I have been unable to find. And shy of that, if you don't have magic powers and can't find a thing th that doesn't exist, I need you to take me into, into your possession <laughs> and to say, this decision needs to get made. These are the four options. I'm going to stand here now and the two of us are going to decide. I feel like and you wouldn't like that though. Like I feel I like don't. you re would resist that and not do, do it and walk out. I, I do resist it. I do not do it. I do walk out. <laughs> I say that's impossible. No, I cannot. No, right. There must be somewhere uh, where this that this pink tile where there's a pallet of this pink tile sitting on a loading dock that's been there since 1955 and the building is abandoned, but there's some, there's some Indiana Jones of old bathroom supplies that's found it. And I just need to, to connect with that person. So this helpful friend has to be 
um, a person of tremendous power. And I don't mean power to grab me or force me or yell at me or use shame or use, um, you know, coercion. What I need is someone who has the inner strength to very calmly say, I hear all of your, uh, I hear all of your wailing. You know, I hear all of your remonstrations. You're ululating, <laughs> but we're going to choose a thing today and I'm going to be here for you and it's going to be fine. And there isn't anyone in, in my life who's able to do that for me. Mm-hmm. I do have people that if I throw up my hands and fall on the floor and say, just burn it all to the ground. Just burn it. Just burn everything. I do have people who will quietly um, like, make sure the lights stay on. You know, but no one who can, and it's not confrontation. It's recognizing that I am in all of my opinion and ferocity and, um, and confidence in some, in some areas that I am an extremely like, uh, well, extremely vulnerable and that, that, and I'm, you know, I'm not, it takes a lot to get me to lash out to say like, no wrong. Like I'm, I maintain a facade of, of great patience and great forbearance when people show me the subway tile from Lowe's for the 15th time, you know, I don't have a tantrum, right? I go, oh, I've seen that. Thank you. That's from Lowe's. That's part number 67492. And it's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this. I can describe it to you exactly. I can tell you the part number in the catalog from 1955 that I have a copy of. I have a copy of the original catalog. And you know, and people in the profession, but people close to me, they all have the same reaction, which is like, well, that doesn't exist anymore. And, and they aren't able to, or interested in considering the question, why, why is it not available? Nobody, nobody. I mean, I, I have called people that work at the tile company that used to make it and say, why don't you still make this? And they're like, oh, we don't sell it. So we stopped making it. And I'm like, but if you made it now, don't you think it was, you didn't sell it 10 years ago when you stopped making it, but maybe if you made it now, it would, well, we don't get that many orders for it. So anyway, that paralysis led me to a place where the contractor just sort of moved on, had to take other jobs. And the people in my life who feel like I am someone with impossible to meet standards and tremendous personal power. 
know, the people closest to me are intimidated by me. <laughs> there's not, you know, there's not anybody in the world. The closer you get to me, the more intimidated you are. You know what I mean? Like I'm not somebody who becomes <laughs> demystified. <laughs> why do you, why do you think that is? Uh, because I'm, um, like the, the, the terrible combination of formidable and broken, like that's a, that's a, that's an awful combination. And I've known a lot of people like it in my life. And, and I think it's, I think a lot of the people in the world that get things done, you know, that, that change the world that are the people we look at and admire are, I mean, their power comes from the fact that they are intrinsically formidable, but deeply broken. And, and it creates, um, it's the, depending on how the alchemy shakes out, uh, those can be uh, like incredibly creative powers. I don't know if you've watched this documentary about, uh, Michael Jordan. No, no, I haven't seen that yet. I've heard a lot of people talking about it. It's really tremendous. And one of the things, you know, it's not a documentary that is seeking to, take down Michael Jordan. It's a documentary that's trying to tell the story of how he's the greatest athlete of, in history. It's a, it's a documentary that loves Michael Jordan, but over the course of several episodes, it becomes inescapable that Michael Jordan is a terrible, terrible person to be around as a teammate, as a friend. He has, uh, he's an exhausting perfectionist, but, but even more, He's so competitive that if you're walking down the hall with him, he will run to get in front of you. If, if there are three guys who work at a gas station playing, you know, like pitch a penny on the wall behind the gas station and Michael Jordan walks by, he's going to shoulder his way in and say 20 bucks. I'll bet 20 bucks that I can beat you guys in, in three pitches. And right. Cause like, he's like a big time gambler as well. Right. He is, but, but, but it's about, it's about like, competition. It's about, about doing something or knowing something or winning or winning. It's, it's about winning. About, it's, it's not, it's about winning and then turning and going in your face. Right. You know, like, you see him over and over. That again, sounds just, just like talking. you, John. That's you. That's, that's, yeah, yeah that's exactly like you. He said, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll turn to a guy that works for him. That's making <laughs> like $6 an hour. Right. And go, um, <laughs> you know, like you owe me 20 bucks. And the guy's like, oh, you know, I'll get it to you. And he's like, yeah, I want to see your money in my pocket. And it's all done in that kind of bullying, mm -hmm. like funny voice. So you're like, ha 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 ha. Yeah, Michael. But you realize in watching the show, like everyone admires him. He's one of the greatest men, but he would be so hard to be around. You know, like I've known guys like that where everything is a competition. Right. And when, and they're sore winners, you know, like they beat you and then they're like, ha ha, take that. And you're like, Hey man, I was just trying to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it wasn't like a thing that I wanted to get into a fucking contest. And now, and I didn't intend, you know, and not wanting to get into a contest. I don't care that I lost and now you're in my face. So like that brokenness in people combined with what makes them formidable 
it is often the thing that powers the world. You know, the whoever, whatever it is that we aspire to be, which is, which is to be like, like to have all that power and to have all that peace of mind and grace and gentleness, but like Buddhist, uh, acceptance. I don't see in history a lot of skyscrapers being built by people like that because skyscrapers are by definition an expression of a brokenness for lack of a better way of describing it because if you have if you are gentle and have buddhist contentment you do not desire to build a skyscraper it's it is a in a way like a so much of what we lionize as our great accomplishments are ludicrous on the face of it. Like being great at basketball is ludicrous in a way who gives a shit. Right. If Michael Jordan was at peace with himself, he would have, he would have a, a little family and live in a modest home, you know? And so the people that are closest to me that love me the most cannot reconcile what they love about me with the fact that, that I'm shattered and unable to put the pieces together myself and unwilling to let anyone help me do it. And, and fundamentally unwilling to accept that it's worth doing or that I'm, you know, uh, that I'm worthy of, uh, not being in pain. So my house, which is, which, which I hope to be my temple, which is my place to hide has been, has been, um, a source of tremendous suffering for me in the last six months as a completion date gets further away as the, as the amount of money I've spent on it goes up and up. And the only saving grace is that I've learned to love to live here effectively in the spare bedroom of my daughter's mother's house. I've learned to love seeing her every day and making popcorn and living this kind of simple existence with no place to hide with no hand in the aesthetic that surrounds me where I'm, I'm, I'm really living in someone else's closet. Mm -hmm. That's been a saving grace. Like that has been a, a lesson, like a, like almost a, almost a religious lesson. But somewhere out there, there's the tile I'm looking for. <laughs>